Hello. Can you guys hear me? So, uh, welcome to uh, a podcast. Now, I, I don't know um, how much you guys know about podcasts. Uh, we're going to find out in a minute. But podcast is an audio medium, um, which means that you do it with your ears, um, not necessarily in a room full of a bunch of people. Um, but before we get into, and usually, and usually you're sitting down when you do a podcast, which is really awkward when you're in front of a room full of people because now you can't make eye contact with the folks in the back row. Um, but let, before we get in, well, so the, the, what's in the show is in the show, Ben. The show has already started. Um, <laughs> um, and so let's do a survey. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of a thing called a podcast? Okay, so for the, those of you listening at home, um, virtually every person in the audience raised their hand. Okay. How many of you have ever listened to at least part of one podcast? Okay, so, uh, you know, I, I would say uh, probably 80%. Okay. Now, how many of you consider yourselves regular podcast listeners? Ah, so we're maybe at one third of the audience now. Now, most important question. How many of you have ever heard our podcast? Uh, at three hands, three, three out of, uh, let's say, 50, 60. So not bad. Good, good market penetration. So, so usually, usually when, we do, when we do a podcast, we both have microphones. I just realized that I, I have the microphone and I'm not, I'm not giving it to Ben. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass the, 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 the microphone to my podcast co-host um, and let him talk for a little while. Yeah, this uh, this one microphone thing means that we'll get to monopolize microphones. Um, so uh, I want I want the record to show that it was like three out of like twenty podcast regular podcast listeners that had heard of our podcast or listened to our podcast. Um, so uh, uh, my name is Ben Chapman. I'm a professor at NC State University. I'm a food safety extension specialist. Um, I, I primarily work in the area of consumer and retail food safety. Um, I do a lot of work um, right now related to how consumers use packaged foods and when, how they follow instructions and if they follow instructions and if they use thermometers and how they use thermometers and how they wash their hands and, and all that kind of stuff. And we do that um, in a setting where um, we have uh, kitchens um, where we bring them in that are all cameraed up and we can use uh, surrogate bacteria and, and watch, you know, watch it move around. And, and so that's like, I don't know, 50 or 60% of what I do um, is that. Uh, I, I do a lot of work with local health departments and restaurants, uh, try to answer a lot of questions about food safety for restaurants, a lot of, a lot of things like, I want to make this kimchi but I don't want to give people botulism. What's the best way for me to do that? Um, or I want to cook, um, this is like an actual question. I want to cook um, uh, short ribs in the sous vide and use an emergent circulator, but I want to cook them for 100 or at 117 degrees for um, 72 hours. And that one will potentially give them botulism. Uh, and in that case, the uh, the guys uh, 
water bath and immersion circulator blew up in his kitchen because uh, he created a bunch of gas form. Well, created the right environment for gas formers to create gas. Um, so I do that for probably, you know, restaurant food safety, probably 30% of what I do. And then I spend the last 10% uh, or maybe the first 10%, the most important 10% um, on podcasting and, and blogging and doing um, public communication of food safety science and, and media. But what, what Don and I are going to do um, today is probably not make a whole lot of eye contact because we talk to each other every two weeks. I'm in North Carolina and he's here uh, in New Jersey and we don't ever look at each other when we have these conversations. And then when I sit and talk to him, I like realize that I'm looking away. And, and honestly, um, we're probably not going to make a whole lot of eye contact with you because as I said before, podcasts are an audio medium. So, so hopefully now you're all feeling uh, slightly entertained and probably a little bit awkward and creeped out. And that is exactly the frame of mind that we want you in for this podcast. So, so uh, uh, Ben introduced himself. I, I, I introduced myself to you folks this morning. Uh, but but for, for the record, please state for the record, sir, um, uh, what you do. I'm uh, a faculty member here at Rutgers University. My name is Don Schaffner, uh, Distinguished Professor, Extension Specialist. I do a, a lot of the same sort of things that Ben uh, does, uh, except more from a uh, computer modeling and risk assessment perspective. We talked briefly about that this morning. Um, but but Ben, um, do you know who we have in the room in front of us? Do you know who who is being represented here? Kind of. I kind of do. I know, I know a little bit um, based on um, the agenda and the website. Uh, so why don't why don't you tell why don't you tell me a little bit more, Don? <laughs> I was hoping you would tell me, Ben. Um, so well, we for for the listeners of the podcast uh, who are listening not now but in 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 uh, later, um, uh, we are uh, hosting here at Rutgers University in the lovely Institute for Food, Nutrition, and Health building with the amazing Harvest Cafe featuring food by Chef Ian. Um, uh, we are hosting the Refrigerated Foods Association, um, and they are located at www.refrigeratedfoods.org. Um, uh, and I will, I will read directly from their website because, honestly, most of podcasts is, is just two, two white guys reading from the Internet to each other. Um, this is not a joke. Um, uh, uh, the Refrigerated Foods Association is an organization of manufacturers and suppliers of prepared refrigerated food products united by a common interest to advance and safeguard the industry. So, and for, again, for you, you folks know all about the RFA cause you're in it and the listeners of the podcast can learn more by going to your website. Um, I do want to say that Ben and I uh, mostly do these podcasts, um, uh, not with an audience, but we have done a number of live shows with audiences and they're a heck of a lot of fun. Um, I will let you guys know right now, um, if you would like to ask a question of us, we will have a portion of the uh, show later uh, where um, you can ask questions. Uh, I, I also, I also want to say we are, we are booked uh, uh, from about uh, 1230 till about two. Uh, one of the great things about podcasts is, um, uh, the, the time format is somewhat open. It's not like a television show or a radio show where you have to be exactly, uh, 27 minutes long. Uh, we don't, we don't have, uh, we don't have that constraint here today. We should try to wrap things up around two. Uh, there's another group coming in to use this space around two 30. And I know you folks also have other things that you got to do on your tour. So, so we're going to do our very best to wrap the recording uh, by about two o'clock today, but we want to leave some time at the end for 
for questions. Um, so uh, with that, uh, I see actually one of the things that, that is nice about doing a podcast um, in, in real time is I can look over on Ben's computer screen, which I usually can't see from my office in New Jersey, um, uh, uh, and see that he has something up that he wants to talk about. So I'm going to pass the microphone back to him. Awesome. And yeah, so it'll be usually when Don and I do this, we, we both have microphones. Um, and so it might be a little bit awkward as we, as we pass things back and forth, cause we usually try to, um, interject our, our comments. So, uh, apologies for those who are listening at home. If, um, if you hear one of us off mic laughing or try to trying to say something, um, but those in the room that won't matter whatsoever, uh, to you, cause it'll just be one guy laughing at the other guy. Um, which, exactly, exactly. Uh, so, well, I, before I, there's a couple things that I wanted to talk about before we get too far into that. Um, just to, to give, give folks here um, at the um, RFA symposium um, a little bit of background who haven't heard of our podcast. We, Don and I do this um, about every two weeks. Sometimes it's a little sooner than that. Sometimes it's um, a little longer based on our, our availability. What we try to do is um, talk about things that we're interested in that are going on in food safety right now. Uh, we spend a lot of time um, over the two weeks that we're not talking, just populating a common Dropbox with stuff that we, we might want to talk about. And so outbreaks, um, new research that gets published. Um, we've, we've now done this um, almost 200 times. I think this is this will be episode 194. Um, and, and over the, we started this seven years ago, I think it was, um, over the seven years that we've been doing this, uh, our, the show is, has evolved a little bit. So we started really like just, we, this, and we tell this story quite a bit, um, for folks who are just in, you know, um, introduced to the, to the podcast, but Don and I are both members of the International Association for Food Protection, IAFP, and IAFP celebrated its 100th anniversary in Milwaukee in 2000 and something 11 maybe 2012 something like that at that conference um NPR's StoryCorps um 2011 good uh NPR StoryCorps um was invited to document um that that event and um people were paired up with each other to just talk about food safety. And Don and I got paired up with each other and we, we kind of knew each other a little bit before, not, not super well. Um, and we, we just talked about how we got into food safety and, um, and our experiences. And I, I at that time I had just started at NC state and Don was an old seasoned veteran cause he's way older than I am. For those of you who can't hear us or can't see us, it's, I mean, it's got to be obvious anyway. Um, no, it, uh, so so we just we just chatted about food safety, and at the end of it, Don Don said to me, um, "Do you know anything about podcasts?" And I was like, "No," because this is 2011. Because if we'd asked you in 2011, you wouldn't have known either. Only nerds, only math nerds like Don knew about podcasts. 2011. Um, he said, "Well, what we just did is kind of like a podcast, and so." why don't we like think about doing this? And so over the next four or five months, we, we kind of like figured out the technology of how to actually do this in two, two different spots and talk to other people that were doing podcasts. He and I had guest guested on a few other shows uh, that were interested in food safety, both independently and, and together. And then 
we just sort of launched into this and said, okay, let's, let's do it. Um, and, and, and the reason for telling you that is that I, when it started, we, we really just like, didn't know exactly what to talk about. You know, we'd go into every episode. I, I thought you were going to say we didn't know what we were doing, which is also true. <laughs> yes. Yes. But we didn't, we didn't like know exactly what, what to talk about for, you know, we, we thought, Oh, we'll talk for half an hour just about what's going on. And then because we come from different backgrounds and Don Don's in the um, microbial world, as well as um, math and modeling. And I come from food safety practices and communication and, and change of behaviors. We, we found that as we were talking about these issues an outbreak that was happening, you know, related to Listeria and, in frozen foods, for instance, that we had different um, different insights on it, different things that we wanted to, to talk about. So we did that for a while. And then um, people started emailing us just kind of randomly, um, and they'd ask questions. So then we'd answer those questions. Sorry, you're, you're misusing the word random. <laughs> um, if people were emailing us randomly, they would be emailing us questions about many things not related to food safety. Sure. They were... They were <clears throat> They were emailing us very deliberately because they knew what we were doing. So I, I, I'm going to give you my, the microphone back, but I, I could, I could not let that pass without correcting you. Fair enough. They were not random, randomly, uh, but it was somewhat random to us because I don't think we had solicited those emails, and people would just email us and ask questions like, "Oh, I listen to the podcast. What do you think about this?" Or what you know. Uh, what, what about, what about this specific type of food that I've seen in the grocery store? How do they keep this? Um, how do they make this safely? And so over the last really year or so, um, a lot of our, a lot of our podcasts has, have started with some stuff that we want to talk about things that are going on in our lives, things that are like top of mind in the food safety, uh, world. But then we'll, we'll go through probably five or six of these questions, uh, each show and, and talk about, what, you know, what, what other people are interested in. And then we pivoted a little more, um, and started having our friends wanted to then come on our podcast. And so over the last year or so, we've had a whole bunch of guests. And so it's not just Don and I talking to each other, but we have, we have others that, that, uh, come in. And, and as Don had mentioned, we'll, we do this, um, this is probably the fifth or sixth time that we've done a, a sort of a larger group around, a. Uh, a, a podcast uh, to get you know, uh, in, in live, and um, the last one we did, we were in Seattle um, a, a few weeks ago, and um, I was uh, teaching a workshop there, and we had um, a small group, much smaller than than you, but all local and uh, state health inspectors who were really interested on very specific uh, questions. And so, um, you know, over the last seven years of, of doing this, I think we. Um, it, how what we do has changed a little bit and and you know that's that's kind of how we how we got into it but our our ultimate goal this is to i and i don't know i'm going to speak on behalf of don he can correct me on this one my ultimate goal is really just to talk to don every two weeks um and we would do this like we've become really good friends over the uh, you know over the 7 years or so that we've been doing this but when something comes up in the in the food safety world, it's really great to just have a conversation with somebody that isn't in your specific discipline about what you know what's happening to give you that that you know perspective. And so we would do this now. I think if we just stopped recording them, I'd still call Don every two weeks um, and just chat with them for for a couple hours. Um, and then the the second I guess goal for me has been to 
I, I used to do a lot of blogging and, and collectively we both, we both write a lot of um, research papers, but this, this medium of talking and uh, having a conversation around food safety gets us to a different group of normal non-food people. And, and over the last um, little while, um, I've noticed just the different types of questions that non-food safety people have that are really, really great, in-depth, insightful questions. Um, and, and that there are just normal people out there that are concerned about food safety that are interested in this. And so this gives us another avenue. I, you know, like I mentioned before, I do a lot of other extension outreach ways, but, but the podcast listening world is a different, it's, it's just a different segment of the, of the market. People that read blogs might not listen to podcasts and people that listen to podcasts may never go read a blog. Um, and so it just allows us to, to connect with, with lots of different people. Yeah. So a couple of things I wanted to say. So, um, when we first started doing the show, um, uh, Ben mentioned to his, his wife, um, uh, that he was going to do a podcast with me. And she said, who, who would listen to that shut-ins? Um, and, and this has become, this has become a joke now that, that in fact, uh, actual real people, not that there's anything wrong with shut-ins, uh, but, but actual real people that are not shut in, um, do actually listen to our podcast. Um, and then the, the, the idea of, of talking to Ben, um, every, every two weeks is, is a great idea. And, and, and I would echo what Ben said. I would talk to him, even if nobody, even if we didn't do a podcast and even if nobody listened, the fact that we can do it and we can put it out there and people find value, I think is really important. And, and in fact, uh, I would also say, um, one of, one of my, uh, favorite podcasts and Ben and I were just actually talking about this podcast today is, is a podcast called Roderick on the line. Uh, and these, these, these podcasts came about because, uh, a guy named Merlin Mann um, uh, from the internet uh, had a friend named John Roderick, who is a, uh, a Merlin is a, a blogger and a, a now a podcaster. John is a musician from Seattle, and John and Merlin struck up a friendship and 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 would talk uh, every so often on the phone. And Merlin had the idea, you know, hey, we should record. These are really good, interesting conversations. We should record them and put them on the internet. And and uh, Roderick on the line. On Monday, just released episode 353, uh, entitled Re "Reverse Khrushchev." Uh, you can, if you want to know what that actually means, you can listen to the podcast, uh, and, and you'll get you'll get the meaning of "Reverse Khrushchev" revealed. Um, and it and it's become a really enjoyable way to spend time uh, with Merlin and John. Um, now, uh, Ben and I have both met. Uh, Merlin in real life. We've never met John in real life, but one of the things that happens as you listen to a podcast. And we've had people express this to us, and, and I know I've expressed this sentiment to other people whose podcasts I listen to. There is something very intimate about listening to a conversation, um, and you really begin to feel as if you know the people having the conversation, um, which can seem a little creepy when you meet them in real life and you realize that they do not know anything about you and uh, – uh, or you don't know it well, anyway, depending on who, who your perspective is, but, but you've listened to that person talk for hours and hours and hours, and you feel like you really know them, but they know nothing about you because you're just a random stranger on the internet who's been listening to them. So, um, it, it, it is a, it is a really interesting, uh, uh medium. And the other thing I want to mention 
in terms of, um, um, well, follow up with, with uh, regarding Merlin. Um, there is a, a wonderful uh, podcast, uh, a single episode, uh, which is Merlin uh, talking to another uh, uh, guy from the internet, uh, John Gruber, who runs a popular uh, website called Daring Fireball, which is all about Apple products, um, the computer, not the, not the thing you eat. Um, uh, and they did a, a panel about blogging at the South by Southwest um, um, uh, show. Um, and, and there's a uh, it, there's a lot of really good information in that, but the basic idea is that um, you you listen you start you start following a blog because of the content, but you stay with the blog because of the voices of the of the bloggers. And I would say that the same thing is true of podcasts. You might come to this podcast for food safety content, but hopefully you stay because you just simply enjoy listening to to Ben and I talk on a regular basis. And, and I can say that's certainly been the case with, with many of the podcasts that I listen to. So I, I've been talking for a while. I'm going to hand the microphone back. Cool. Okay. Now we've, now we've given you the, the preamble. That's what, how we got into this. That's what a podcast all about. Let's, let's actually do it. <laughs> let's start it. So usually let's start it. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, usually if you do, if you have ever listened to food safety talk, the first like 10 minutes or half an hour are usually about things that Don and I are watching on Netflix um, cause you gotta, you gotta warm up BritBox. Don, Don's only watching things on Acorn TV and BritBox. He, I'll, I'll I, I, let me, let, let me spare you the last 15 episodes. Don is watching currently some British detective series that is dark and it's always cloudy and everybody looks really sullen. That's every show that he suggests to me it starts with the murder. and it starts with the murder. Yeah. Um, and I'm watching lost with my kids. Uh, so anyway, we'll skip, we'll skip through that, that part, but we'll get into some of the things that we do like to talk about, which is like where food safety pops up into popular culture. And, um, the first thing that, that came up, um, in the, you know, in the last couple of weeks that, uh, Don and I were tweeting about and, and started talking about was, um, something that if you, if you're in social media, you may have seen this, but there was, um, a paper that was published that, garnered a whole bunch of like funny meme uh food safety stuff and i'll read you the title of the paper because it is pretty awesome experimental replication shows knives manufactured from frozen human feces do not work as a real research paper that is in the journal of archaeological science so um i thought that would get a bigger laugh i know get a bigger laugh from the audience it's no, maybe is this on? No, uh, see, that's the lab. Uh, so, so anyway, this, you know, the, what happens on the internet sometimes is people just see a headline and then they go crazy over it. And so I decided to go read the paper, um, which is kind of the, you know, the, a good, a good first part, uh, for this. So, and in, in fact, it is exactly as it seems, um, someone tried to make a knife out of human poop and then freeze it and then try to cut things with it. And why would they do that? Well, there's some history for this. So, um, and I'll read from the introduction. In his book, Shadows in the Sun, Davis uh, recounts what is now arguably one of the most popular ethnographic accounts of all time. And so I gathered from the reference list, um, and before I read the passage, this book was about someone spending time with um, in, with an Inuit population and learning about what it was like to be an Inuit. And so the recount from the book is, quote, there's a well-known account of an old Inuit man who refused to move into a settlement. Over the objections of his family, he made plans to stay on the ice. 
to stop him, they took away all of his tools. So in the midst of a winter gale, it's very good prose, by the way, he stepped out of the, uh, of the igloo of their igloo defecated and honed the feces into a frozen blade, which he sharpened with a spray of saliva with the knife. He killed a dog using its rib cage as a sled and it's hide to harness another dog. He disappeared in the darkness. So we've got this like mythical tale. Someone wants to know, is this scientifically, uh, can we reproduce this? Can we actually do it? And so um, some folks did this and I will read to you from the materials and methods, which is really my favorite part of this paper. <laughs> and it starts very thoroughly. Uh, in order to procure the necessary raw materials for knife production, <laughs> right? Come on. One of us, MIE, so it's one of the authors, went on a diet with high protein and fatty acids, which is consistent with an Arctic diet for eight days. So I like that. I thought this is a good situation. We're not just trying to take any old human poop and make a knife out of it. We're going to source human poop that is consistent from this, this tale. Um, uh, so eight, do not only eat meat from maritime and uh, uh, terrestrial animals, uh, and there were three instances during the eight-day diet that this individual ate fruit, vegetables, or carbohydrates. And they give a table of all the things that he ate before he procured his poop. Raw material collection did not begin again until day four, and then proceeded regularly for the next five days. Table S1. And when I went to look at table S1, I was not, I was really hoping for a figure, um, and all I saw was a table. Uh, fecal samples were formed into knives using ceramic molds, quote, knife molds, or molded by hand, quote, hand-shaped knives. All fecal samples were stored at minus 20 degrees Celsius until the experiments began. We procured pig hide, muscle, and tendons, and these are also stored at minus 20 until two days before the experiments began, at which point we allowed them to begin thawing at four degrees Celsius. Minutes prior to the experiment, both the knife mold samples and the hand-shaped knives were removed from the laboratory freezer and further sharpened with a metal file. The knives were then buried for several minutes in dry ice uh, to ensure they were sufficiently frozen before any attempt at slicing. Uh, and then this is my absolute favorite part of the methods. The study was approved by the Institutional Biosafety Committee at Kent State University because we can't have people just holding poop and not knowing the risks. Anyway, as you can tell by the, the uh, um, title, it didn't work. The poop knife did not cut any food. But now we have data to support this, uh, uh, to, to refute, I guess, this uh, well-known tale. But um, anyway, I, I, this, obviously there's a nice little food safety uh, slant to this, but it did get me thinking about the sort of eloquence of what we do in science sometimes, which is, okay, we have an idea, let's go test this. And someone had obviously over time refuted that this actually happened, but there was some um, push back to the myth. So let's actually go, let's go gather the data and find it. And there's, there's, you know, beauty in a poop knife, um, story, I guess. So a cu couple of comments. Um, I could have told you this wouldn't work. Right. Um, th so there's a paper, uh, entitled management of risk of microbial cross-contamination from uncooked frozen hamburgers by alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Uh, <laughs> And this this paper is by Schaffner and Schaffner. Uh, you you probably you know them both, yes. Um, and so what we did in this paper was we inoculated frozen hamburgers with a microorganism. We had people handle the the frozen hamburgers, um, and then and then put hand sanitizer on their hands to see if it could remove or inactivate the microorganisms. And one of the things I can tell you 
And those those burgers were frozen to minus 20 and they're 100 percent protein. Right. So so basically even more proteinaceous than your than your. Well, I don't know about your poop, but but the, but the poop in the study. OK, um, it, <laughs> that should be a song. Um, uh, uh, and. And and those those burgers were melted by the time they were be, done being handled for a very short amount of time. So uh, really not not all that not all that surprising. So and the other thing I want to call your attention to is once again, um, in an effort I guess to 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 be on the podcast, uh, Caitlin Kasuli has figured out to text me during the podcast. Um, uh, and, she, and Caitlin wants to know, and and you know, and she's on the podcast. So Caitlin wants to know, um, do you know anyone with Dr Pepper slash Snapple? And then I responded, why do you always text during podcast recordings? Um, uh, and she says, because ca Snapple customer service told me their product doesn't expire. So um, if anybody here in the audience knows anybody that works for Dr. Pepper or Snapple, um, talk to me and I'll put you in touch with Caitlin. So um, uh, anyway, she, uh, she she's very concerned that she's being given incorrect information. And uh, she's like a dog with a bone. Um, she is not going to let go of that. Um, until uh, she gets satisfaction. So mu much like much like uh, John Roderick's sister Susan, um, that's a reference to another show. Um, uh, are, so anything else you want to say about poop knives? No, nothing. Okay. Um, uh, uh, I don't have anything else. <laughs> no, no, I, I do, I do, I do, I do. Sorry. One one important thing. Um, so all this talk about poop knives made me think of another thing, where people had a scientific hypothesis. And then they tested it by doing the thing in the hypothesis. And and I, um, uh, this is a memory that I have from a kid, which means it's probably a memory from before you were born. But I want to check your check in with the, your cultural uh, reference with this. Have you? When I say contiki, what do you think of? It's like a tour group that I think takes people on tours in Canada. Uh, that's that's not the answer I was looking for. Um, so so Kantiki was a book uh, by a guy named Thor Heyerdahl, um, and basically in the book he 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 had a hypothesis that people could have sailed um, from I'm going to get this, the details wrong, uh, but from the old world to the new world um, on rafts that they could fashion from materials that were available on Iceland or Greenland or something something. Um, so. Uh, and he, he actually uh, did this and then wrote a book about it. And it is now a major motion picture that came out relatively recently. I thought, so I thought you might have heard of it. But, but, but there's an example of somebody who had a hypothesis about a poop knife. In this case, it was a boat, not a poop knife. Uh, and he tested it. And, and in fact, it confirmed that he was able to, with these very crude materials and very crude um, uh, types of uh, 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 sailing craft, actually navigate uh, to the new world. So, um, so sometimes uh, the poop knife works. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Um, okay, so we're gonna go to, from poop knives to roadkill. Uh, so um, Don knows a little bit about this, but somehow uh, five or six years ago, someone called me from uh, um, like Newsweek or some like like popular mechanic, some some like popular um, science uh, or news outlet and asked about the safety of eating roadkill. And so for about three weeks, I was gloss, like I was named Dr. Roadkill by my friends. Um, and so that Don doesn't know this, but that came up again last week where, um, a journalist or freelancer for outdoors or outside magazine asked me, um, to do an interview about the safety of, of roadkill. Um, and, and so, 
it's one of these things where we get we get pulled into odd conversations because of what we do. And, you know, you kind of look at. So here's the thing. There's a lot of people that do what we do, Ben. I think that you and I are especially vulnerable to or receptive to being pulled into odd yeah. conversations. So I think there is a little bit of self-selection there. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so, uh, so this, uh, this uh, journalist wanted to know, um, you know, they had had a couple of reader questions for their magazine about coming across deer or other animals at the side of the road, and what were the food safety risks to consuming those? And not this is one of the things where where Don and I, I think come at the messaging and um, consumer facing um, messages a little bit differently because you know, the, the easy answer is like, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't eat food you found on the side of the road, right? Like that's, that's a pretty, pretty good, like common sense kind of thing. But unfortunately it's not, it's not really as easy as that. When I dove into this world of roadkill food safety a few years ago, um, there, there's a researcher who I've now befriended. Um, um, her name is Andrea Anator and she does work in food disparity and hunger and has looked at um, lots of different populations, different geographic locations, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And in the U.S., a, a, what, what she would determine as a coping mechanism for someone who doesn't have enough food is to do lots of things to go find food. Dumpster diving is one of those uh, things that, that you might have heard of uh, as a coping mechanism. Um, eating foods, and this sort of goes to Caitlin's uh, question, eating foods past their, quote, date, expiration date, which we know is not a real term, but best before date or sell-by date or use-by date, whatever it is, um, consuming those foods uh, and, and buying them either at salvage grocery stores or procuring them from, from elsewhere. But one of the things that she found that was surprising to her was a not, a not insignificant amount of people would um, really go like harvest food or forage, I guess is, is probably the better term food that they found at the side of the road, um, and dead animals, uh, being one of them. And so, so the easy answer is you shouldn't eat it, but telling someone who doesn't have food, that's food. Don't eat it is not really, um, not really, a, uh, the, the best possible, possible answer. So anyway, the question came up, uh, uh um, this last week and was like, no, don't tell me not to, to eat it. Tell me what the risks are. Tell me what, what are people exposing themselves to if they see a deer at the side of the road and they don't know how it was, how, how it was killed, what, what could happen to them? And so we had a conversation about, um, tuberculosis and we had a conversation about trichinosis and talked a little bit about, um, with, with deer chronic wasting disease and, and really coming down to, the difference between food I find at the, at the side of the road and food in a dumpster is I just don't know anything about it. So there are risks. Could it have been a healthy animal? Absolutely. Could it have been a sick animal? Absolutely. I just don't know. And so I talked to, to the journalist really about what do we do in the meat production and processing system to, to really drill down to know about the health of the animal as much as possible and keep those animals that are sick out of our food supply because they are at higher risk for, um, for foodborne, um, illness. And, and that, um, as, as we were kind of preparing for this and, um, I, I was reading through my maybe favorite, 
um, weekly publication, um, CDC's morbidity and mortality weekly report. And that is not a joke. I do love Thursday afternoons when it posts. Um, there was uh, a note from the field from last week, zoonotic mycobacterium bovis disease from deer hunters in Michigan, 2002 to 2017. And so um, public health individuals in Michigan, Michigan Department of Health, found that um, there were incidents, small little uh, clusters of um, a mycobacterium bovis, um, and it, the risk factor was handling these, these dead animals. And so I see hunting and game, at, not quite, if we look at this as a risk continuum, I'd like things I buy in the grocery store, lowest risk. Things I get that I shoot in the wild, maybe a little higher risk because I don't know about it, but at least I can tell, is that deer running? <laughs> and I say that I've never shot a deer. I don't know anything about hunting. Um, so I, you know, I, my guess is there's a deer walking. It looks like it's healthy. Someone's going to shoot it with a, with a bow or with a gun. And then higher risk is there's a dead deer at the side of the road. And I don't know what, what it is. And all of those things need to go into this calculation to say, should I eat it? Should I not eat it? Uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I prefer not to, to tell people what to do, but it's about that's your riskiest out of these three different, different types. And so, so anyway, what did, what's your, what's your thought on uh, roadkill? So this would be a, this would be a great topic <clears throat> for a podcast um, like called, would you eat it? Or is it, is it risky or not? Yeah. Um, the only thing I don't have anything of substance to add. I have, I have one, one com well, two, two comments first, first comment. Um, so, uh, well, related comment. So I've got a colleague uh, we talked about before, Deb Keenan, who here at Rutgers University, who also works on people who are food insecure, don't have enough to eat. And and she will often talk to me about these issues as well, dented cans and, and salvage and stuff like that. So so please, um, when, when I'm uh, when I'm finished talking and, and, and paying attention, um, tell me the name of your colleague. So we'll link to her website as well. Um, but the, the only the only thing about roadkill that I'll, I'll offer the comment is that for and, I, and we talk about our spouses um, a lot on the show. Um, I also will occasionally, I think I've occasionally referenced, uh, my, my ex-wife, who's a lovely person, who's a colleague here at Rutgers university, um, that I'm not married to anymore. Um, that, um, but she's a very nice person. We have two wonderful kids together. Um, but she, uh, she, she grew up in Georgia and she would, I think, I think this is true. I'm not, I'm not misremembering this. She would for years travel with a rope and a knife in the back of her car on the off chance that should she ever hit a deer, she was prepared to field dress it. Um, she's a very practical person. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that's the only thing I have to add on the topic of roadkill. Well, and, and I'll, I'll let, let me just uh, follow that up because I, I think um, initially when we talked about this a few years ago, um, listener of the podcast, sometimes listener of the podcast and someone who we should have on the show, uh, Carl Custer, who's a retired USDA uh, FSIS, um, uh, scientist, um, talk, talk quite a bit about this, this idea of like hitting a deer and no, like uh, making that akin to like hunting, right? Like, like I know as much about that deer as I would have, uh, yeah. And I, and I, if I can handle it and, and field dress it, that that'll, um, be less risky than if I just stumbled across it there. I mean, there are lots of other issues around meat quality and bruising and, and that kind of thing that came up, but, but really what, what this journalist want to know is, well, what's the, what's the risk, 
tell me, tell me about the risk. And a lot of what, what Don and I do is, is try to get to that point where we are very clear about our, our role of, um, defining risk, looking at, 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 at um, pathogens, looking at practices and saying, yeah, these things are riskier or, or, or not, but it, you know, it's up to individuals to be, to risk, to be risk managers. And I think, I mean, many of you that are here in the room, you're much more risk managers than, than we are. And we're really happy about that because we get to like sit and talk and not actually make any real decisions that cost people money. Um, or, you know, uh, lead to public health issues. Um, and so, so we, I, I, I really, really get that, um, that aspect of, of what we do and being, um, you know, somewhat protected because we don't grow, make, buy or sell anything. Yeah. And we've talked about before on the podcast, like one of the things that you do as an extension person is very often you get questions like, should I do this or is this safe? And of course, the answer that that's become a running joke on the podcast is my answer is it's complicated and it depends, right? But but that's not really helpful. Well, it's first of all, it's not helpful when somebody calls you for advice, but it's sure not super helpful when someone who's food insecure and who's trying to make that trade-off between should I eat this um, or should I go hungry? Um, that that suddenly and and it was it was really kind of eye-opening to me when I had those conversations with Deb Keenan to begin with, um, where I realized like wow there really are people out there that don't have enough to eat and they are and they really need me to stop being, uh, you know it's complicated and it depends guy and and actually answer the question in a way that that's helpful or or to say at least you know these are um, these are more risky practices. These are less risky practices. You know, these are mostly safe practices. These are things that even if the, the consequences of doing this is probably worse than going hungry. So you definitely shouldn't do this. Well, and as a segue to that, um, we'll, we'll jump into some listener feedback that, that Don and I had, um, after one of our recent, um, episodes. And so one of the things, you know, if you haven't listened to the podcast, this will, We'll, I'll explain a little bit. Um, the first guest that we had on on our podcast way, way, way a long time ago um, wanted to be an anonymous guest. And so we gave her a name um, and and it started with deep, like, you know, deep throat, right? Like, so um, she was deep freeze, deep freeze. Then she wanted to be Dr. Freeze. Then she wanted yeah, she couldn't figure out exactly. Anyway, so we started calling people deep and now, now people send us emails and they're like, don't say my name, call me deep something. And so this one comes from deep citizen. Uh, and the message says, feel free to read my message, but not my name. Um, since I began listening to your podcast, um, I, uh, have started having lots of fun conversations about food risk. I've met lots of people who are willing to take fairly high risks with their food for the, and for the healthy adult who's not afraid to be sick, what food safety issues should be, they were, should they be worried about? For example, botulism is fast acting and leaves permanent damage. What types of questionable food situations should a healthy aged, uh, healthy adult age 20 to 40 be on the lookout for to limit exposure to life altering complications? So essentially the question is what things are really risky and what things are are not really risky, um, for those individuals. And so the, um, deep citizen gives a, a little more information. Let's presume that the, the healthy individual will stay home if sick, isn't at risk of infecting others, won't seek medical attention due to lack of insurance, will treat symptoms with over-the-counter drugs, will remember a short list of quote, high risk symptoms to indicate 
um, if, uh, if an ER trip is required. Um, our risk threshold is somewhere around preferring that the person jump off a one-story building rather than eat the food, which is really like an interesting way to, to place this. Um, quote, life-altering is anything that prevents work for longer than a week, major issues longer than a month, or requires a hospital visit to cure. And, and so really the question to us is what, what would this person, you know, what could this person eat that's as risky as jumping off a one-story building, right? Like that's, that's a really interesting question. And, and, you know, and this, I had some problems with the question, but I think fundamentally the, 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 my problems center around, I have no idea how risky it is to jump off a one-story building, yeah. right? Yeah. Now the person asking the question seems, seems to seems, seems to have some knowledge and he mentioned, he mentioned parkour. Yeah. Do you know what that is? Yeah. Okay. So, 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 <laughs> so. So I don't have experience with parkour or jumping off one-story buildings. Um, I I have um, I have been in the hospital from from falling into the road when my dog uh, pulled me over um, uh, chasing a cat. Um, I yeah well I I got I got I got metal in my wrist now I got I got a, a you know a slightly more distinguished looking forehead where I had 40 stitches um, some wonderful pictures of me uh, in, a, in a neck brace which I didn't need um, I mean I didn't need the neck brace they didn't know that at the time but um, but but I don't know you know I mean understanding um, what the risks are from jumping off a one story building would be a good place to start so so as a typical academic I've taken the problem and I I like added additional steps that I need to solve before I can solve the problem. So, but, but tell me, tell me, tell me what you think. So, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you in making that exact comparison, but I looked at it more like what foods would I expect to maybe get a little bit sick from, but not really, really sick and in life altering. And the way that Don, Don, um, and, and I did have a little back and forth on this question. And, and the, the issue is, even as a healthy individual, the, the, the problem with food safety and risk is the risk, you know, something that I've learned, learned from Don. We, we talk about um, uh, this term of infectious dose, which isn't really a thing, right? Like someone in this room can, probably can get sick from one salmonella cell in a meal. It's not the mean. It's not the average. The average is going to be more than that. Listeria is a, is a perfect example of this, where we're looking at a, a mean infectious dose in the hundreds of thousands uh, of cells per serving. Can someone get sick with, from Listeria monocytogenes with less than 20 cells? Probably. I mean, the answer is it's out there. There's someone out there that can. In fact, if we look at um, the Listeria-linked outbreaks that we've seen recently from um, ice cream, frozen vegetables, it seems to be a much lower dose with high-risk population. So this person is talking about a, a low-risk population. Um, and and I, I, the so if I was, and I'm, I guess I'm kind of in this, this demographic, I won't be jumping out of a one-story building. Um, that's a risk that I'm not willing to, to take. But I would worry less about exposure to norovirus. Um, I don't think I'm going to get a life-altering um, situation in that realm. We do see deaths, a couple hundred deaths from norovirus a year. Um, it's going to be terrible for a couple of days, but those deaths, the, um, the morbidity and mortality from norovirus are with elderly high-risk populations. Um, so I, 
it, you know, and so I think about, all right, what foods am I likely to get norovirus from? Um, and, and so this is the path that I went. It's like, well, let's look at raw oysters, right? So raw oysters, raw shellfish, um, we see multiple norovirus linked out outbreaks. Unfortunately, it's not the only pathogen from raw oysters. We have Vibrio as well, which is something that I wouldn't be willing uh, to take that, that risk. So, so the, the question for me became less about foods, and it was like, where am I going to find these specific pathogens? Um, the other thing I thought about was, um, I can't remember the name of the individual, um, but there was a, um, there was a story, um, in the New York times, I think it was Michael Moss wrote it about seven or eight years ago about an E. coli 157H7, uh, outbreak. And some of the, one of the, uh, people that were one of the person, one of the, somebody who was profiled, sorry, I'll get my words out here, um, was a healthy 20 year old, uh, ballet dancer who was exposed to 157H7, no, not in a high risk group at all, and ended up um, in a wheelchair with complications from, from that infection. And so, so, there, so there's another situation where it's like, okay, 0157H7 is a badass pathogen. It's gonna make people sick. It's more likely to make someone life alteringly sick from norovirus. But we see the most severe illnesses from that pathogen in um, uh, younger age demographics, elderly, and immunocompromised individuals. And so, so I don't, I, you know, I'm trying to zero in a little bit more on on this. I think I'm gonna, if I'm in this, you know, for deep citizen, I'm gonna eat foods. The risk that I'd be willing to take would be listeria risks. I'd eat all the raw milk soft cheeses and deli meats, um, and, uh, and other foods that we see listeria, um, associated with if I'm in this demographic and, and have less worry, unless I'm a pregnant, healthy 20 to 40 year old, um, individual. Um, and I'm going to try and eat foods that are, have norovirus in them. Actually, that didn't come out right. I'm going to eat foods that are more likely to have norovirus than, than other things. Cause those aren't life altering, um, illnesses for the most part. But the problem is that that anything could have norovirus, right? I, that the, anything you had uh, at the at the the salad bar today could have had norovirus because uh, it's on people's hands, right? Um, uh, you know, it, this and again, this is this is this is not an easy what what the what the listener is is asking is not an easy question to answer. Um, I can tell you one mildly more risky food that I chose to eat recently. So as we, I think we. I think we shared on the last show. We maybe haven't. We maybe shared in some conversations here today, but not uh, not on the pot on the podcast yet. Um, I I am jet lagged uh, because I was in Portugal. You are jet lagged because you're in Hawaii, and yet somehow we're both still here and having a conversation. I we returned home to a house. We did a very good job of running out of the, all the food before we left, uh, but we did return home to a house uh, that had very little breakfast food, um, uh, but it did have three eggs um, in a in a carton. Um, and those eggs had expired uh, the week before. So I, I on Monday morning, uh, had an egg uh, that had expired, that it was expired. Um, I mean, it, it had a date, it had a best before date. Okay, it had a best before date. Uh, and it was past that date, only just. Um, I cooked it. Uh, probably a runny, 
runny. Uh, it was it was sunny side up. Have we talked about my egg cooking? Um, so I, I have a whole I have a whole method ready ready for a big a big big digression. So and also we've been handed a note um, that says that we need to absolutely wrap up by 150. So it is now uh, 125. So I think after after I tell my egg story, then you can talk a little bit, and then we'll we'll see if we have any questions from the audience. So my my go to method of cooking we we have talked about these amazing pans that I can never remember the name of. Um, uh, Hamaker Schlemmer. That's not it, but it's it's a double name. Um, we'll, we'll find it for for Gesundheit <laughs> pants. No, um, we'll talk about we'll talk about the, that. But but this wonderful uh, metal uh, blue blue steel uh, blue steel pan. Um, uh, it's just the right size for cooking one or two eggs. But what I do is I cook the eggs on on a setting of three on my stove on my gas stove, which is a nice mild heat. It doesn't brown the. I don't like I like them cooked, but I don't like them brown. Um, and then I will get a pan a pot lid from another pot that's not the pan, and I will put that over it. And what that does, it starts to cook the top of the egg, um, but it's still a little bit runny on the inside. So it, it gets, it really makes it perfect. I have, I have this whole, I, have a, this, I eat the same thing for breakfast every morning. If I'm, if, I'm, if I'm driving to work, I get the same Starbucks breakfast every morning. If I'm cooking at home, I make the same breakfast every morning, except for on the weekends where I, I have bagels instead of some other carbohydrate source. But, but anyway, enough about me and my egg cooking and my, and my name and my pan I can't think of. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. Um, um, uh, anyway, I'm going to hand the microphone back to you, and you're going to talk for a while. Okay. Cool. Um, you know, the reason why I was asking about expired eggs is because you know, thinking about the risk. What what would be, um, what would I worry about in eggs? It's Salmonella enteritidis, and is that Salmonella enteritidis going to grow anymore if I'm holding those eggs at 41 degrees? No. So I'm I'm not worried about that. There you go. I'm not worried about your your expired eggs. Um, worried about you know your your over easy eggs. No, <laughs> no. And Don and I have talked about eggs a lot. I mean, it's it's one of those foods. So maybe that's part of the answer here, right? It's like eggs are a food that that historically we've really looked at as as a food safety risk when it comes to Salmonella enteritidis. But but the real risk comes in pooling them. You know, it's, it's somewhere in between one in ten thousand and one in twenty thousand eggs based on data that's that's out there, something like that, right? I think we, we did we one in three. three. <laughs> That's a lot of salmonella in eggs. One in thirty thousand. Yeah. One in thirty thousand eggs. Okay. Uh, it's 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 a it's a, a it, that's a low that's a low risk food. In fact, so low that um, obviously the egg production is a little bit different here. But the UK has stopped their recommendation for pregnant women to avoid raw or undercooked eggs entirely, and said no no just just eat eggs. Eggs are eggs are good good sources of food uh, of uh, of nutrients. Um, so since it's it's one one twenty eight. Oh yeah. Real time follow up. Mafter Bourget. M a m a t f e r b o u r g e a t. So not Hamaker Schlemmaker, but 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 Bourget is there. I mean, they don't give me any money to say this. Um, uh, and if and if they did, I would tell you. But it's a really nice pan. I I, I really like my pan, Ben. All right. Uh, so should we open up for audience questions? So so I think that rather than pass this awkward microphone. Any more than we're already doing. Um, if you have a question, why don't you just uh, shout it out, and we'll repeat it for the folks listening at home, and then we'll do our best to answer it. Anybody have any questions? Dave Horowitz, you must have a question. You got me into this thing. 
So, 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 so Dave Horowitz, the, 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 the gentleman who got us into this local, uh, live podcasting gig today. Thank you, Dave, for that. Really do. I really, I don't want to say thank you. He asked a very good question, which is how we pick the theme song for the show. This shows that, that Dave listens, uh, and he also has a Neil Young fan. So the, the, the opening music, which you didn't hear here today, because we add that in post, um, is Hey, Hey, My Mind by Neil Young. Um, Oh, Ben's 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 gonna Ben's gonna play it for you right now. How do we pick that, and why do we not have a custom song? So, I'll give my version, and then Ben can give his version. So we we both like Neil Young. We knew we needed some rocking song to open the podcast. We decided that it would probably be Neil Young, and so. I listened to the first 10 or 15 seconds of a whole lot of Neil Young before I said, you know, that's the one. Because it has a really, it just sort of opens and it just, you know immediately what it is. It, it just starts rocking out. And so that's how we picked it. Um, I have contemplated getting a custom song. And should should Mr. Young's lawyers ever contact us and ask us um, to please not use his music without paying him royalties, we will most definitely do that. Um, but, uh, but, and there are some great, uh, theme songs out there, uh, that are, uh, written by friends of friends from the internet. And so that, that's always a possibility. If, if anybody has, wants to give us a song, we'll, we'll take it. We'll listen to it. Um, uh, so yeah, Don, Don's right on, on Neil Young. We're both, we're both fans. And I'll, the only little anecdote I'll give is, so I'm, uh, and it may be obvious from my, uh, from my accent, I'm from Canada. Um, not, not from, uh, the lovely state of New Jersey where, or North Carolina, where I live. Um, but, uh, in Canada, um, you're either like, and if there's any Canadians in here, you can either confirm or refute this, but you're either like a Neil Young fan or you're a Rush fan. And I'm, you know, in the, in the U S you can be both. And in the, in, in Canada, you're in one of the other camps and I'm most definitely a Neil Young fan. So we couldn't have Rush. Uh, as, as the, uh, um, as our opening song, but yeah, we wanted to find something that was like, gave enough that we could not start talking right away that didn't have, um, any lyrics and just like had something that was like powerful with a, with a guitar that, um, um, th that version comes from rest never sleeps, uh, which is probably my favorite Neil Young, uh, album. Um, and it's just like, it just sounds like so echoey. Um, Don and I also like talk about music and stuff quite a bit, but, um, but yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Do, yeah. Is that a question? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the question was uh, uh shout out to, to Doug, Doug Powell um, and does Doug not does not listen to the podcast. Uh, Doug, uh, Doug Powell um, does include a lot of songs with his, with his posts uh, on barf blog. For those of you who don't know about barf blog, um, there's a blog that uh, Doug and I started, um, almost 15 years ago, um, I guess, uh, as a way to share food safety stories. Uh, he had had a uh, listserv uh, um, um, posting food safety news and people could email subscribe to it. And um, one, it was actually on a, a trip. He and I were um, on the West Coast of the U.S. together, we were sitting around in a restaurant talking about this whole idea, similar to the podcast, like this whole idea of people are just like publishing their stuff and we should get a website and, and let's make it um, and uh, came up with the concept. And then a, another uh, co-student uh, of, of mine, uh, a guy named Christian Batista, we 
we created this website. We wanted people to share information about, you know, their vomit stories. And then we would talk about stuff in the news. Um, and, uh, Christian, we were sitting around one day and, and he, and trying to come up with names and he came up with barf blog and that's where the, where the name came from. Um, and, uh, Doug, um, Doug was, uh, uh, Doug was my master. I worked for him as an undergrad and he was my master's and PhD advisor. Um, so I spent uh, a lot of time, uh, under, under his, uh, his guidance and still, still do today. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so it's, uh, that, that's kind of the, the roots, I guess, of, of a lot of the stuff that, that we talk about as well as we, we go to, um, you know, barf blog, things that get posted there, less so in the last little while, Doug's been dealing with some, um, some medical issues, but also, uh, food safety news, Bill Marler runs. We use those sources as like a spot to get, get some ideas to, to talk about. But Doug is actually the, who introduced me to Neil Young. Cause I was just like a graduate student who was listening to, um, I don't know, terrible Canadian hip hop. And he was like, you should listen to this. Well, thank goodness he introduced you to, to Neil Young and not Rush. And not Rush, exactly, yes. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, and just to give an example, uh, the most recent uh, Barf Blog post, not the most recent post, but the most recent post that includes music is entitled uh, Australian Capital Territory Food Safety Record Improves After Educational Model Introduced. Uh, Doug's uh, uh, first reaction is, I'm not sure I buy it. I'm, I'm with you, Doug. Um, at, but he, at the bottom, he does link to uh, Pink Floyd, another brick in the wall, so. Uh, uh, very, very good example of integrating uh, music and popular culture with, with food safety. Uh, I think there was a question in the back of the room. The question is, do we know how many listeners we get? Um, and the, the short answer is sort of. And the second answer is, you know, we're not real. We're kind of okay at technology. Like we can, we can, we got the podcast submitted to iTunes, um, which is a little, not that much work, but it's some work. Um, we're using a hosting service called Squarespace, which is fantastic. Um, it doesn't actually give it. I don't know. There's numbers. There's numbers, and the numbers go up over time, and so that's good. Um, the numbers go up right after we post an episode, which is good. Um, uh, actually, uh, Apple uh, does now give you uh, listening. It has a, through its own podcast player. It will tell you um, how. Uh, many people are listening and how long they listen and where they stop listening. But there's alternate players out there that don't provide that information. Um, ben has actually looked it up and he has maybe a more concrete response. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, so with the website analytics, we can tell how many people subscribe to it and then get the feed of it. And so we're somewhere in the like 4,000 people um, are in the subscription, every, you know, sort of every month and it goes up and down. And like Don said, when we post something, it goes up a little bit and then it goes down. And then the listening, when we looked, um, it was somewhere in between like 700 and a thousand listeners. And that was, we only looked for, I think it was like three or four podcasts about, uh, about a year ago when I was trying to, <laughs> when I was trying to get promoted to full professor, I needed to know numbers. And so I was like, can you get, can you get the analytics? And so I, so I Don got it. And then I had what our subscribers were. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to report the subscribers. Cause that number is bigger than the actual listeners. Um, so anyway, that's yeah, but it's somewhere, somewhere in that area. I think we're very much like a, uh, you know, a very, uh, boutique, uh, style podcast. 
Yeah. The other thing too, that will, we'll get to your question in a minute. The other thing that will, we will definitely boost listeners is if we have a internet famous person on the podcast. So I've mentioned Merlin Mann, Merlin's a guest that on the podcast, John Roderick, although we never met him in real life. Uh, he has guested on the podcast. Um, recently we had, uh, Max Temkin, uh, as a, as a guest on the podcast, you probably don't know Max, but if you've ever heard of the card game cards against humanity, uh, Max is one of the co-creators of that car- card game. And he does, a uh, a wonderful, hilarious podcast called uh, Dubai Friday that, that we both guested on, and he's he's guested on. You, you've been on Dubai Friday? No, no, no. We had Matt. Uh, yeah, yeah. They just mentioned you all the time, Professor Chapman. Um, so, so you know, there are ways to kind of get people engaged, and we've we've really, I, it's really not. We've created an audience for the podcast that is really nice. It's a mixture of dedicated food safety people who do this for a living, as well as just other, I won't call them normal people because they are definitely not normal people. They are people who, who, who don't do food safety for a living, but who have concerns, <laughs> have concerns about germs. Um, uh, not, not, nothing, nothing clinical, uh, that requires a diagnosis or treatment, but, but they, they're, no, but they're really interested in this and they, and they really have found us and we, we love, we love all of our, we love all of our listeners, uh, equally. Um, and we're grateful for each and every one who, who listens. So question in the back corner. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, have we done any podcasts about sushi? We have sushi has come up as a topic on the podcast many times. Um, my, my go-to response is I like sushi. I just like the kind with cooked stuff in the middle. Um, uh, that said, uh, I have eaten the kind that has raw fish in the middle. I, we, I went for a wonderful dinner with, um, some Brazilian colleagues a couple of years ago, uh, to a wonderful uh, place in Sao Paulo, Brazil, um, ate a whole lot of sushi that had raw fish in it. Didn't get sick. So that was a good thing. Um, uh, but, but we have talked about it, uh, when a number of years ago, there was an outbreak linked to a back Back scrape, back scrape tuna, which is literally what it sounds like. It sounds disgusting, but where you you scrape the the back bone of the tuna and get the extra meat off, not not sushi grade, um, uh, and people did get sick from that. Um, so we have we have definitely talked about sushi, and we talked about we talked about a lot of the common things that you people think about in terms of food safety, like sprouts and sushi and things like that. Yeah, and on sushi, um, it's an area that I spend a lot of time in in restaurant food safety. And um, I look at sushi, at, you know, here in the U.S., we have the food code that really says, here's how you have to handle sushi if you're following the code. It's got to have some sort of parasite destruction on it with, you know, freezing temperatures or something that's equivalent um, to deal with the with the, that risk. And that's the one that you would see with, um, I would expect to see with um, whole, like, you know, cuts of, of tuna or other, or, or other meats. Um, where I get concerned about it is, uh, with the rise of, um, people buying sushi, um, like s- buying, um, tuna or fish and make it, trying to roll sushi at home that hasn't gone through parasite destruction and, and the kind of like idea of sushi grade. And it doesn't really mean what we think it means from a safety standpoint. It's, it's about quality, um, and then the, the real rise of salmonella, which, you know, Don mentioned the tuna back scrape, but then there was, um, another salmonella, um, linked, uh, 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 you know, uh, sushi, uh, outbreak. And then there was some scallops that were in Hawaii that I think was, yeah. Um, and so that was, 
the, just the, the handling aspect of it, the rolling, um, bare hand contact that, that, that aspect is where I see, um, issues, but I, I, I feel confident that when I go to a restaurant and get sushi, that I'm getting the least risky sushi, at least through the process. If everybody's following the food code, then I'm, I'm likely to not uh, be exposed uh, um, to those, to those pathogens. Cause it's, it's built in. It's not, you know, it's not zero risk, but I, I'd say it's the least risky. Yeah. And I'll say um, my go-to location for buying sushi is Wegmans supermarkets. We have Wegmans here in New Jersey. They do a great job with food safety um, and we get, we get our sushi from them. Um, even though uh, it's, uh, we only get the cook kind. Um, and I will say one more thing. Uh, we, uh, you can search our website and we talked about sushi, at least uh, mentioned it explicitly about five or six times. We have had some great episode titles over the years. Sushi is mentioned in hyperbole and fire ants, blood, sugar, Nakagachi Scrape Magic, um, episode 172 entitled Math is Hard, uh, and, and among others, episode 82 entitled Late Breaking Golf. So we, we really, we do, I, I, I'm really very impressed with our work, Ben. Um, uh, any, <laughs> all right, I think we have time for probably one or two more questions. Yeah, go ahead, shout it out. Yeah, what, so the question is, what's the most shocking thing that you've ever heard about happening in a restaurant, Ben? So I don't know, this might not be super shocking, but it was something that I didn't know about until I started doing research in the area of food service. Um, and, and so I've, I've told the story, I'll tell a shortened version of it, but I've told it on the podcast before how I got into restaurant food safety is I did my master's degree looking at on farm food safety in vegetables and I got really bored of it. Um, and this is like, hopefully there's no producers, farmers, uh, here, you don't represent any, um, but like everyone, when they talk about their farms, they're like, my farm's different than every other farm. And then after going on like 700 farms, they're all the same. Uh, and, and so, but so, so I was like, you know what, I've, I've seen a lot of this, like we have water and we've got hands, we've got production like that. There's, there's a lot of things that it, it's not as, I like really messy situations, um, from a food safety standpoint, I really like that. Not like unsanitary, but I like it when it's the challenge is really hard. And so I went to restaurants and started learning about it. Um, and, um, a part of a way to learn about it is I volunteered as a dishwasher, uh, in the back of the house of a, of a restaurant. Cause I didn't know anything about it. Like, I mean, I was this kid who grew up like working at a retail store. I'd never worked in food service. And so, um, so I, I, I washed dishes. And when I was doing my, my PhD for, um, few hours, um, three days a week, uh, in the morning through lunch service at a local restaurant and a guy who I knew, um, close to my university who, um, was like, yeah, he was really interested in food safety. He's like, come in, you can see what it's like. And so what I learned, um, most shocking was how much Tom Petty is listened to. Um, no, uh, in the back of the house. No, no. What I, what I really learned was just the concept of how, um, how much substance abuse plays into decisions around food safety. And, and the biggest one that, that came up was, um, I, after I saw it a little bit, and this was in Canada where everyone had health insurance, but as, as I continued down this path and interviewed people and, in, uh, food handlers about what they're concerned about, people would talk about, um, blood and cutting their hands. You're, you, if you're in the kitchen, you're going to cut yourself. There's going to be blood, but if it was bad enough, duct taping that their hands, because they were concerned that 
if they had to go to get um, stitches, that they were going to have to pass some sort of a blood test and they would fail it. Like no question about it. Um, and that, so instead of dealing with the insurance aspect and getting fired from their job for, um, for it, um, that they would, they would duct tape their, their hands. And, and that was like, I, it, it makes a lot of sense. Like looking back at it, the more I've spent in, um, in that environment, it is super high pressure. It's ups and, and downs. It is not like any other situation I'd ever been involved in. Um, but it was it put a lot of perspective into the things like, you know, when you go in and be like, you should wash your hands more. And someone's like, yeah, well, both my arms are duct taped because I cut myself. <laughs> it's like, Oh, okay. I see. We have two, we have different priorities right now. Like, like this, that it put a lot of perspective into the things that I was doing. And it was, it, you know, again, it's not like it was shocking, like someone died or anything, but it was something that I had no concept of before I actually stepped into a kitchen setting. Good, really good question. And, the other, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, um, and now and now it's actually a little bit sad every time we mention it. But if you have not read it, uh, Tony Bourdain's book *Kitchen Confidential* um, is is a really good look inside what it's like to work in a restaurant. And I, and I, I, I uh, it's he is uh, sadly uh, passed, but but it's a great it's a great book and, and highly recommended. So, uh, I think that's a show. I, I think probably if you're listening at home, uh, the, the Neil, Young. Neil Young is coming up, uh, under, underneath, uh, as we talk. And, uh, I, I just, I just want to say, um, thanks, uh, thanks to, to Dave and for refrigerated foods association for, for, well, you didn't have to bring me here. I was, I'm just in the building next door, but you guys brought, brought Ben here and you created this venue where we could do what we do. Uh, and, uh, and it, it was a lot of fun and I'll, I'll let Ben have the last word. Um, I don't have anything else to say. Just thanks again for the for the invite and thanks for for your attention and great questions. And uh, enjoy the rest of your uh, symposium. Thanks.